Okay, so today we're going into um, teaching mode. And so we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this series. We're going to keep talking about him in the new year. There's, if, uh, picture it this way. Um, the Holy Spirit is not a stool, but if he was, um, like not this kind, because this has four legs. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and his role in his presence um, and I want you to have in your mind this analogy of a three-legged stool, okay? The legs on that stool are allegiance, truth, and power. These are the three kind of macro categories of the Holy Spirit's operation and his role. So far, and today we're continuing with this, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit's role with allegiance, Okay, his role in transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, his role in sealing us, uh, his role in filling us, his role in salvation. All right, so we've been talking about his role in allegiance, and today we're going to continue to talk about that. We're going to move on at some other point that Jesus knows and I don't. Um, we're going to talk about his role in truth. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in expressing the power and authority of God, the power gifts of God, the sign gifts of God. Um, because the Holy Spirit is active in all of these spaces. And so to talk about allegiance, um, we kind of took this high macro view that our universe made by God is inherently spiritual, okay? So we don't take a naturalistic Darwinian view of the universe. Yes, God has created natural laws that operate and they work, but God did not create the universe, set in place natural law, and then uh, draw back. The Bible teaches that our universe is organic in that God is involved. The spiritual is incessantly involved in the natural. The Bible teaches that God uh, can override natural law. God overrides weather patterns sometimes, which we need to be careful with, right? when we're like, oh, that hurricane happened because God's not happy. That's not a thing that we should be, like we don't get to operate at that level <laughs> of knowledge. Um, so we need to be super careful with that. But the Bible is clear that God interjects himself into the natural laws and he can disturb them. Jesus had authority over weather patterns, over storms and all kinds of that stuff. And that's, we'll talk about, th those are the gifts of miracles that the Holy Spirit has, all right? So we've kind of laid this foundation that a biblical worldview, and, and I just wanna say this, if you're here and you don't really know where you stand with God, you're not sure what you even think about the Bible, amazing you're here. I'm actually um, just presenting to all of us what I would believe would be a biblical worldview. You don't have to believe it. That's the beauty of this. 
You can say you're full of whatever, Andrew. Leave the swears till you're in the parking lot. But you're, um, you could say that. That's okay. I'm just presenting to you what we find in Scripture. Because as a church, one of the, the key areas of life that is required to be formed into the image of Christ is to come under the authority of Scripture. So I'm just trying to give you a biblical worldview for these subjects. Uh, you can wrestle with them uh, wherever you are at. So, universe created spiritual and natural. The biblical worldview would be that at some point, we don't know when because the Bible doesn't tell us, but at some point before human history, there was a, a rebellion against God in his kingdom. This was a heavenly rebellion led by an angel named Lucifer. Lucifer was the highest created spiritual being by God, but he was created by God. So point number one, Lucifer, Satan, and God are not equal. This is not Iron Man fighting Superman or whatever. They're not equal. Satan is a created being. He was created as the most glorious, powerful, and majestic spiritual being that was entrusted with leading all of God's other angelic beings in the worship and praise of God. Lucifer, we find in Isaiah 14 and in the book of Ezekiel, Lucifer um, developed pride. He fell to pride. He wanted to be worshiped in the place of God. He wanted to ascend to God's throne. That's super key for what we're about to talk to later. He wanted to sit on the throne of God. So he contested God's rule in the universe. He led other angels and spiritual beings in this rebellion against God, and they lost in heavenly places. That's where we get the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms spiritually at play. There's not a third, there are two. So this spiritual rebellion worked itself onto the earth and we find this recorded, the beginnings of this in Genesis three with the temptation of Adam and Eve to, to sin or transgress against God. So Lucifer comes as a snake, a serpent, and he casts doubt into Adam and Eve uh, as to whether God is really good, whether they can really trust him. He tempts them to attempt to become like God themselves, and they sin against God. The result of that we covered last week. I'm not gonna get into detail. The result of that we're still dealing with today was absolutely devastating. The result of that, because of Adam and Eve's sin, Lucifer gained legal rights to humanity. We were created in the image of God to worship him, to follow him, to work in coordination with him on the earth. Our assignment from God as his human family was to steward his presence on the earth. It was to rule and to reign with him, to express the heart of God to the earth. In the fall, we lost that. And we became slaves and captive. All of humanity became captive 
to the rule of Satan on the earth. That's what scripture teaches us. It says this in Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. David says this in Psalm 51.5, I was born a sinner. From the moment my mother conceived me, I was sinful. We have inherited uh, this nature. So through that act, the enemy, Lucifer, purchased us legally as his own possession. The result of that is that we are possessionally owned and the world is by the kingdom of darkness. Now, a few weeks ago when I first mentioned that, um, a lot of you were probably offended by that statement, um, but I wanna just talk you through what I mean by that. I, 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 I said something that is very startling and I recognize that. There are only two spiritual entities that possess humanity, either God or Satan. There's no in-between. You are either possessed by the Holy Spirit, which means owned, or possessed by the kingdom of darkness. There's no in-between. There's no, like, I'm just working this out and I'll figure it out. When you and I die, we don't get to determine what happens next. We don't get to look at the reality of hell and go, ah, you know what, I changed my mind. I'm gonna choose not to do that. We don't get that right, why? Because Satan has purchased us and purchased the legal right to have humanity. This is why there's this really weird scripture in the book of Jude in the Old Testament that talks about the angel Gabriel and Michael fighting with the devil over the body of Moses. Why were they doing that? I think they were doing that because this is pre-Jesus, pre-cross. They were contesting the eternity of Moses. It turned into a spiritual battle over the body of Moses. Why? Because Satan was saying, I have legal rights to him. You haven't died for him. You haven't shed any blood for him. He's not under the blood covenant of Christ yet. I have rights to him. And so Gabriel's like, uh, I need help here. Michael comes in and helps to war against. There's a contest going on in spiritual places for the souls of humanity. And you can't, and I can't, if we wanna have a biblical worldview, a biblical posture, we need to recognize, as harsh as it sounds, is that you are either owned, a slave to, and under the leadership or headship of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Now, when I say possession, a lot of you go to poltergeist right away or to some Hollywood version of that. It's super popular right now. I just noticed on Netflix, like the number one show is like, what is it? Like the school of good and evil or whatever. Our culture is obsessed with spiritual power, with spiritual things, obsessed with darkness, obsessed with light. But I wanna tell you, there is no good spiritual power apart from the power that comes from Jesus Christ. There is no in-between, and we're gonna talk about this. 
So from heaven's point of view, I want you to kind of think of it this way. There's two kind of realms we're talking about, upstairs and then downstairs. From heaven's point of view, all of humanity is either under the rulership of Jesus Christ of Nazareth or under the dominion of Satan. There's no in-between from upstairs. Now, there's a lot we have to work out downstairs, which we're going to talk to and talk about. That word possession, I want to just explain this even further because this uh, can be troublesome. Possession, and you can write this down if you want to. I would suggest it, but just do what you want. Um, Possession is positional and sometimes presence. So possession is position. Am I in Christ or not? Possession is position upstairs. Have I been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus or not? That's the question of possession. It's positional and sometimes expresses itself in presence. Meaning sometimes you see the effects and reality of that, but not always. That's super key for us moving forward. All right? Another way to say that is we're talking about ownership and manifestation. So what I mean to say by people being owned by and possessed by the kingdom of darkness is not that they're frothing at the mouth and, uh, and experientially manifesting demonic things. It means that from a legal upstairs perspective, they're not bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. They're under the legal ownership of the kingdom of darkness. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Once you were dead... You weren't on life support. You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, doing what? Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. Underline this. He, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. It's not not that your reason and your logic are so powerful that you are operating purely based on your deductive power and that your reason and your logic are carrying you to disregard Jesus or to undermine scripture or any of those things. You're not that smart. I'm sorry, none of us are. Paul tells us that even those highest places of reason and logic that oppose God are actually driven and influenced by the devil. So it's not that you sit in this neutral place. You're not Switzerland, like we said. You can't just pick and choose. If you want to accept any of this or not, you're born into it like I am. Um, John Thompson, I'm so indebted to him and his leadership in this area, to Randy and Keith and Rob Reamer and others. Um, This book, we we bought a bunch. Um, They're out in the lobby. You can buy them after. It's called Deliverance. This is the most thorough biblical theological treatment on the subject we're talking about today that I've ever found. 
This is like hardcore, in-depth, deep study into this reality. So I wanna encourage you to get one if you're interested after. He says in this book, the Bible is also clear that each human being is either owned by God or Satan. Again, if you are struggling with whether you believe scripture or you wanna reject it, that's okay, you can do that. I'm just giving you the biblical framework here. You can choose to reject it if you want, that's all right. Each of us is either possessed by Satan or possessed by the spirit of Jesus. We are citizens of one kingdom or another. So possession, get this ingrained in you, is not, um, possession is position and sometimes presence. Possession is not fundamentally about behavior, sincerity, or personality. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of the laws of the spiritual universe that we are a part of. So what we need to do is we need to actually rid ourselves of the Hollywood caricature of the demonic. And we're going to talk a bit more about why that is so damaging. 2 Corinthians 11 says this. Paul is saying, I'm not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that, he, that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Okay, so I said uh, a few times now, I've said something to the effect, like if God removed his hand from the earth, his presence from the earth, it would be unimaginable suffering, right? It would be unimaginable suffering. And some of you, and I've thought about this too as I was thinking about what I said, like maybe that doesn't make sense in reality. Like, because we don't just see total suffering on the earth. Like there are good people, right, who are doing good things and they're not followers of Jesus. So how could you say, you know, that if God removed himself, then everything would be destructive because there are really good people very kind and nice people, often kinder and nicer than most Christians who live on the earth and they don't have um, allegiance to Jesus. They haven't given their allegiance to Jesus. So what gives? Well, here's what gives. Satan now, because he's contesting the rule of God, he's contesting the kingdom of God, he needs to operate in a benevolent way. He needs to come as an angel of light. He needs to come as a good witch, as a good sorcerer. He needs to come as a, somebody who brings good gifts in order to garner the servitude of humanity. If Satan came in his true colors to you and I, we would never follow him. Do you think that in the temptation of Jesus, Satan came in his true colors? No, he did not. If Satan were to operate in a fully kind of like, this is just me, <laughs> my real true self, nobody would follow him. That's why he, in general, I think, operates as an angel masquerading as an angel of light. You know, there are, in many other world religions, people get healed. 
You can go see, um, uh, you know, a Wiccan witch and she'll pray for you and bless you and even heal you. Scripture is filled with the demonic operating in supernatural power. The story of the Exodus, those 10 plagues are judgments from God against the pantheon of Egypt's gods. They're not just random like, hey, let's do frogs today. Like weird, (laughs) random. No, God is bringing judgment to the supernatural spiritual beings that Egypt worships. Do you recognize when Moses is there in Pharaoh's court and that very first thing, he throws down the, the staff and it turns into a snake. They don't go, oh my goodness, what just happened? They don't do that. What do they do? The sorcerers do the exact same thing. You have power, we have power. The whole story of those plagues is God confronting demonic power. And that demonic power resisting and saying, we have power, we have power, we have power. We're going to enslave these people. We have power. And finally, they don't have enough power. They can't overcome God, Yahweh. But Satan on the earth today, he's not, he's not walking around in his disgusting, ugly self. He's walking around in masqueraded beauty. And he's tempting you to believe that you can enter heaven by doing good works or engaging in social justice or by blessing people or by pronouncing good things over people or by doing this, that, and the other thing. But from heaven's upstairs perspective, there's only two options. If you are not under the rulership of Jesus, under his lordship, you are not operating in his kingdom and you are under the leadership of the kingdom of darkness. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral magic. If you want to use like a Harry Potter kind of thing, I, I don't know, I've never read them, but there's no in the middle. And this is what we have to understand. The Holy Spirit's role is vital in actually bringing people the knowledge of God. And on the earth, the Holy Spirit is active in every space and place, uh, tearing down the blinding effects of the enemy of God so people can see Jesus, so that they can receive him or hear him. The Holy Spirit is active right now in the neighborhoods around this church. And he's drawing people. Why? Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. He's active in bringing people into allegiance under the kingdom of God. So possession is about position and ownership, not about presence and experience. From heaven's perspective, people operating in good magic, reading tarot cards, palm reading, your the horoscopes that we like to read, demonic. If you sit there and you peruse horoscopes, you're engaging with demonic activity. I'm sorry to tell you. The source of that is not good and benevolent because it doesn't come from the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you want to know about me, open your Bible. Don't open the last page of the newspaper or wherever they're found. Right? Thank you. Um, These things that we say 
are just nice and good, right? Going to a psychic. All of these things are not neutral and heaven doesn't see them as neutral. So we have this problem with these kingdoms that are in conflict. Through the fall, we become, and humanity becomes a slave to the kingdom of darkness, but that's not the end of the story. And this is the good news that God sent his son into the world to destroy the work of the enemy, to overpower the kingdom of darkness and to bring salvation and freedom from bondage and slavery. That's what Jesus came to do. He came onto this planet as a human being, identified with every struggle that we have, every weakness that we have, every human limitation that we experience. He willingly accepted in humility before God. And Jesus destroyed the power of the kingdom of darkness. He's the only one that could do it. And that's why he's the only one that can save you. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. We need Jesus to deliver us, to transfer us from darkness into light. And the Holy Spirit is essential in that. He draws you. He's the one who draws humanity to Jesus. He's the one that, that destroys the blinders so that we can understand and even perceive the love of God. And he's the one that fills us and seals us in redemption for eternity. John 14. Jesus said, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. This is before the cross. Listen to this. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires. Jesus recognized the reality of this, con uh, this confrontation between the kingdom of darkness and light. So here's what we really need to think through. Jesus came precisely because humanity is under the ownership of the kingdom of darkness. If we're not under the ownership of the kingdom of darkness, then we don't need a savior. We can figure it out on our own. Let's just put our heads together and get it done. Jesus came precisely because humanity is born into sin, born under the rulership of the kingdom of darkness, and that needed to be dealt with. So he came precisely because we are under the ownership and control of Satan and his kingdom, and we have no way out of our own. He came and destroyed the work of the devil through his work on the cross and his obedience to the Father. There's so many scriptures that we could go through here. And Jesus said that in turn, he would send the Holy Spirit to us as the guarantee of our sonship or daughtership, as the guarantee of our adoption, the guarantee of our transfer. So the full effect of the power of God to bring us from darkness into light and to protect us on the way. When anybody who is in Jesus dies, there is no contest of darkness between who gets to own that person's soul for eternity. 
There's no contest because that's already been won and paid for. When you die and you're in Christ, there's no great battle for who gets to control you or own your soul for eternity. That's the, that's the good news of the kingdom of God, that it doesn't matter what Satan does to me on the earth. He can even take my life on the earth, but he can never overpower the hand of God that will bring me to the presence of Jesus. He cannot. And the Holy Spirit is sent as the guarantor of that, the seal of that, the fullness of the kingdom of God in me that carries me from this life into the next. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he needed to come. What did Jesus invite us to do in order to come into his kingdom? This is like... This is so basic, but it's so important for us to remember. He invites us to turn our lives over to him, to believe in him, and to submit to his leadership in our lives in an ever-increasing way. He invites us not just to say, Jesus, I confess you as Lord, but Jesus, I accept your rulership and leadership in my life. I need it. I'm turning my whole life over to you. What did Jesus say? Repent, turn from your sins, and turn to God. Peter, in Acts, said, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. That was Paul, sorry. Along with everyone in your household. So we turn our lives over to Jesus. We accept his leadership in our life. We say, Jesus, I, I can't save myself. I accept and need the covering of your blood for me, what you did on the cross, I receive that and accept that. I turn the keys of my life over to you and I invite you to rule and reign in me in the place that darkness has had a stronghold and foothold in my life. And when we turn our lives over to Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us. Why? Because we need a new heart. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. 2 Corinthians 1, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Galatians 4, because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. So the role of the Holy Spirit in allegiance, all right, so we're back to that kind of leg on the stool, in allegiance, is to come and reside in our heart to transfer us from the kingdom of God, uh, from darkness into light, to give us a new heart and to fill us, to live in us. Romans 5.5, 5, and this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So when we give allegiance to Jesus then, he fills us, he gives us a new heart and we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become possessed by the Holy Spirit. Possession is position. Okay, we become then under the rulership of Jesus. 
1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. This is highly offensive in our culture. Our culture actually aggressively would war against that statement. No, your body is yours and you can do with it whatever you want. Sexually, identity, everything. It's yours. You just treat it however you want. Scripture, if you want to follow it, says otherwise. You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So those who entrust their lives to the Lordship of Jesus have been bought by the blood of Jesus. They've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's where allegiance changes. So now we have the personal, full presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit filling our heart and inhabiting our bodies. Let me just read this paragraph to sum this up. Because it's a lot. <laughs> so the universe is organic with two spiritual kingdoms. Because of sin, humanity's born into the kingdom of darkness under its power and possession. Jesus came into the world to destroy the work of the devil and bring another kingdom to earth. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus secured the keys of the kingdom of Satan and triumphed over every demonic ruler, authority, principality, and power. Now Jesus has defeated Satan and invited humanity to receive his gift of salvation by turning from their sin, believing in him, and turning their lives over to his lordship. When someone does this, Jesus transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. He gives them the Holy Spirit, who gives them a new heart, fills them, and seals them as sons and daughters. They are now possessed, they are owned by the Holy Spirit of God. Satan and his demonic realm now attack and undermine the work of Jesus in the life of the believer. That is like the gospel and all of scripture and everything condensed into a paragraph. That's what we're living in. So, that leads, at least in my mind, which might be a little bit distorted, to the next question. So if Satan is warring then, what can he do to a Christian? And here's where uh, we're gonna get a little bit spicy. And uh, like I always preface, I don't mean to offend anybody. This has been a subject, I've actually wanted to preach on this for a few years, but God has been telling me to hold off on it. We're gonna ask the question, and we're gonna look at scripture, and we're not gonna do it exhaustively. This summer I took a seminary class on this one subject. It was phenomenal, but we don't have time for all of that today. So then, you're bought by the blood of Jesus. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're filled by him. You're still in a battle zone. What could Satan do to a Christian? That's the question. And why would we even talk? Maybe you feel like I talk too much about the kingdom of darkness. I don't obsess about it in my everyday life. <laughs> but scripture actually talks about the demonic over 300 times, more than the, more than the angelic. So we gotta just deal with it. And this is like real life. 
This is normal life. So we gotta just deal with it and address it. Open your Bibles with me to Mark 1.21. We're gonna do a quick survey through the New Testament, pre-cross and post-cross. All right, Mark 1. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, this is right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. We're gonna talk about that word because that's where the trouble lies in that word, um, that translation. Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him. Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked. It, it has such authority, even the spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly. Okay, what I want to just point out is they're not amazed because there was a demonic encounter. They're not amazed because somebody cast out a demon. When you read in the intertestamental period in the Apocrypha, um, exorcism became a very regular practice. What they were so astonished by is that Jesus did not have to follow this very rigid and detailed script of how to deal with the demonic. He just spoke to them directly and they listened. So Jesus did not have to engage in the same ritual the Jewish exorcists had to use. That's what they were amazed about. Not that there was a demon there, but that, whoa, who is this guy? He's not using the playbook that we are told we have to use. He's not using ritual to do this. He's just speaking directly with the demonic and there's a confrontation going on. A couple of things about this passage. Number one, that word possessed, meaning that man in the synagogue was possessed. That is an awful English translation. In the Greek, there are five words for ownership. The word that is used for possessed here is none of the five. So possession should not be the word used here because possession is about ownership, like we've just talked about. The word that's used in the Greek literally means he had or there was a demon with him. He was vexed that there was a demon present, not that he was owned by the demonic. So there's five words in the Greek that are used for ownership. None of those are used in behind this word possessed here. So that's not a good translation for us. It means to have, it means to have with, to be vexed or to be in. The correct word for this is demonized, not possessed, okay? Possession is about position, remember that, and sometimes presence. The other thing that we need to re realize, this was part of um, this seminary class I was in, as the prof began to dig into this, he said, you, like, so again, because of Hollywood, our perception of this encounter 
is that Jesus walks into the synagogue, this guy freaks out, this demon manifests, and then he's cowering in the corner like, who are you, Jesus, the Son of God? What are you here to do? That's not what's happening. In the Greek, this is not a passive thing. This demon comes at Jesus. This is a confrontation happening. This is a confrontation in spiritual places. He's not cowering in the corner. He goes right up to Jesus and he says, I know your name, I know who you are. You have no right to be here. That's what this demon is declaring. What do you have to do with us? Jesus, we know who you are. This is our turf and it's not your time yet. You have no right to be here. That's what the demon is saying to Jesus. He's confronting and contesting this turf, this ground. This is right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. When the demon says, Jesus you know, of Nazareth, he's not confessing Jesus. What he's doing is saying, I know your name, therefore I have power and authority over you. I'm greater than you are. I know who you are, so I'm greater. He's trying to play this card in this interaction with Jesus. Why are you interfering with us? This is our turf, this is our place. It's not your time yet. Jesus, get out of here. That's what this demon is doing. So this, we gotta get out of this sort of like cowering the corner, like <laughs> kind of thing. This guy is coming at Jesus. This spirit is coming at him. Even that term, Jesus of Nazareth, in the Greek, it's a, a terribly offensive mockery. Like, who do you think you are, Jesus? Ha, son of God, yeah, right. We know who you are. Who do you think you are? And then he says, you Nazarene. That was like, that was like a curse, a curse word. He's trying to humiliate Jesus in this encounter. So this whole interaction is not a picture of the demonic cowering in fear, but an aggressive confrontation Notice that they're resisting Jesus. The demonic, the demon is, and they're trying to stand their ground. Say, uh-uh, not in my house. I got this place. I got this guy. Sometimes we have this idea that if, if we just speak the name of Jesus, then every demon flees. No, they don't. In virtually every encounter with the demonic Jesus had, they pushed back on him. They contested it. And they do it in our lives too. You can't just walk around and like, in the name of Jesus, do this. No, they're gonna push back on you. They're gonna bully you. They're gonna try and intimidate you. And that's what this unclean spirit is doing to Jesus. That word in scripture, maybe sometimes your Bible would translate it as unclean spirit. That literally means out of order. Unclean spirits, this is not a moral term. This is a term to refer to the presence of darkness is out of order with the kingdom of God. And everything they do is to disrupt the shalom of God. Everything they do is to undermine the peace and the order and the goodness of God. That's what an unclean spirit means. So I want you to notice here, this man is in the synagogue. First century Judaism did not have seeker-sensitive churches. 
There was no coffee bar. There was no gift for visitors, right? There's none of that going on. If you're in the synagogue, you're part of the local church. You're, you're part of the church. So he's in church every week. He's under teaching of scripture. Question, is the Holy Spirit involved in authoring the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament as authoritative as the new? Answer, yes. He's under the teaching of scripture every week. He's under the teaching of truth. He's in community and not until Jesus comes who walks in the power of God is there any kind of confrontation with the demonic. Nobody knows. Again, that goes back to my point before. Satan doesn't operate with all of his cards out on the table. He doesn't. You can be in community, in the church, committed, serving, hearing truth and scripture, reading it, and still have to deal with this stuff in your life. Next story, Luke 13. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When he saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. Okay, a couple thoughts about this. Number one, we need to be super careful with this, but notice that the cause of her physical affliction was demonic. Okay, super careful with this. Not every physical affliction has a demonic source to it. We cannot make absolute all statements from passages like this. We've got to be super careful. Jesus healed many people where he was not simultaneously casting demons out of them. And in fact, in scripture, we don't have time to talk about this. When people came to Jesus for healing, for physical stuff, and the demonic was not present, they used different language to talk to Jesus. Son of David, Messiah. When the demonic were present, they used language like the most high God, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, other things. And so there's a tipping there from the spiritual places as to what the source is. But sometimes... The source of physical things can be demonic. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, what, Luke, what was Luke's job? He was a physician. He uses a very technical medical term for this condition, and that condition still exists today. It still happens today. It doesn't mean that every time it happens today, it's demonic, but in this case, it was. Jesus was able to understand the source of this. So this was an evil spirit causing physical pain, but not all sickness can be cast out. We've got to be so clear about that. You cannot go up to people and presumptuously say, oh, you have cancer, that's a demon. We've got to cast it out. You cannot do that. There is no biblical basis for that whatsoever. None. And that would not be, not only not biblical, that wouldn't follow the trajectory of the Wesleyan quadrilateral that we've been talking about. Jesus did not heal every single person that he came into contact with. Paul was not able even 
to heal Timothy. He said, Timothy, you have many ailments. <laughs> Paul was not able to just pray for people in uh, automatically. So we have to be wise with this. But Jesus uses a specific word in verse 16, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham. That is a very specific title that Luke uses to identify that she, has, she is, in a pre-cross sense, a follower of Jesus. She has yielded her life to God. She's not just a casual Sunday Christian. She is like said, God, I want you to lead my life. In another story, the story of Zacchaeus, this same, uh, this same term is used. When, when Jesus gets to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus says, look, I'll give everything uh, you know, back to the poor and all of this stuff, Zacchaeus repents. And this is what Jesus says, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. So now we're dealing in a very real sense with what we would call a follower of Jesus who has an internal demonic spirit that is afflicting her. And you might say, well, Andrew, that's pre-cross and you know, we have the Holy Spirit living in us and how could the Holy Spirit ever dwell with the demonic? It's a great question. How many of you, and we're almost done, but this, is, this will help you, like how many of you, and there's no, there's no shame in this, there's no, but would say that what you've been taught is that this whole subject of spiritual warfare of the demonic is a gospel issue, and that as soon as you give your life to Jesus, all of that stuff is dealt with. Have, is that, would that be a teaching that you guys have heard or that you would believe? Just put your hand up if that's true. Oh, come on. That's what I grew up believing. What, don't shake your head, Dad. That's, I'm not saying it's your fault, I'm just saying. <laughs> Ah, my father, my father. All right. Even if you're too nervous or intimidated to put your hand up, a huge swath of our fellow brothers and sisters believe that as soon as you give allegiance to Jesus, everything is dealt with. That, and you'll hear phrases like the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place as an evil spirit. How could they reside internally in a person, together, that's impossible, that cannot happen. And I wanna tell you one million percent it can happen, and it does. Even after the cross, Acts 5, there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He bought a piece of the, he brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. I wanna just, just a couple of things here. Ananias was not obligated to bring any money. But there was a door opening event in his life and it was lying. I just want to point that out. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Here's what I want to point out. The same language for fill your heart is the exact same phrase and wording that Paul uses to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not something different. He's saying, Ananias, why have you allowed Satan into your life in the same capacity that you've allowed the Holy Spirit in? 
Why have you done that? And then if you know scripture, you know the rest of the story. So we're talking about somebody who through a door opening event of lying has now invited Satan to fill their heart in the same capacity as Paul says you can be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. Still, if you don't believe me, let's go to Ephesians 4. This is Paul. Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. So we have some things here that Paul is dealing with. Anger, sin, lying. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. The Greek word for foothold is tapos. It's used a bunch of times in Scripture, and 90 whatever percent of the time, it means physical space. So Paul is saying, when he's saying, don't give the devil a foothold, he's not saying, don't give the devil some kind of external like route of attack. He's saying you are giving him inhabited space in your life. So the home, let's use our homes, right? You, you buy a home, you legally own that. The mortgage is under your name. It's bought, maybe not paid for, but it's bought. You own the home. If you leave the door open and somebody comes into the home, does that person now own the home? No, they don't own the home, but they're there, they're present. What do you have as the owner of the home? You have the legal right and authority to say, get out of my house. But if we don't recognize the reality in spiritual places, even when you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, even when he's in you and dwelling in you through sin and other avenues we'll talk about later, you can open the door to the enemy to have inhabited space in your life that cannot be removed by just truth or allegiance. Unholy power can only be removed by holy power. Luckily, we have the greatest power source available who triumphed over sin and death. Paul is saying that even anger can become a door-opening event that gives the enemy space. And you would say, Andrew, I still can't understand how, I can't understand how that can be possible. I've always been taught that God cannot even exist near darkness or evil. And I would say to you kindly, what Bible are you reading? Just turn to Job. Satan comes into the very throne room of God and they occupy space together. Go to the temptation of Jesus. The son of God, Jesus is God. And Satan is right in his space tempting him. If you still don't agree or believe me, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, right? Do you actually believe that? He's everywhere all the time? It's true. The Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time. The Holy Spirit is incessantly sharing space with the demonic and evil. Everywhere, all the time. So this idea that 
once I just give my life to Christ, I don't have to worry about or deal with anything spiritual or anything demonic. It's just not biblical. It's not right. It's not true. You don't have this magic bubble around you. You do as it relates to the upstairs, your eternal reality. Your salvation is never in jeopardy in this view. You don't have to worry when you die about what might happen. You don't have to worry like today I screwed up and oh no, is, is, like, is my whole salvation in jeopardy? No, you don't because you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're adopted as his son and daughter. You don't have to worry about any of that. But you can't live in ignorance believing like the devil can't touch me, right? Because he can and he does. And the story of scripture is Satan ravaging the people of God. Why? Because you're made in the image of God and he hates God and he hates his image. Why do demons like to inhabit people? Because we are the only other place in the universe where the throne of God exists and resides. And he wants to be on that throne. He wants to mock God because he hates him. So, have a great lunch, and I'll see you guys later. <laughs> if you know me, and you could ask Rochelle, one of my like, coping mechanisms is just humor. I have to like, make a funny, smart butt joke about something. Anyway, I just felt it was just really tense there. I wasn't sure what to do with that. So, <laughs> so. And we're going to talk about this. Part of our struggle with this is that we, and I will include myself in this, we don't view our sin the way we need to. We somehow think our sin is less offensive to God than Satan is. And we all do it. We think that our sin is just like, oh, this is my thing. Like I, I, but our sin is as grievous to the Spirit of God as the demonic are who actually are the ones enticing us into sin. And when you and I sin, which we do all the time, does the Holy Spirit leave us every time because he's like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't dwell with unholiness. No, he stays and he's present and he's with you because he's greater than, yes, he might be grieved, but he doesn't leave. So you can be dealing with spiritual realities that are not just about declaring truth. They're not just about your allegiance. There is unholy power at work in the lives of men and women who follow Jesus. And the travesty, the heartbreaking travesty is as a church, we've had little to no response to that. People, we've just said, just kind of sit in your suffering because I don't have the category for how to talk about that because I was told that it can't happen. I'm telling you one million percent, yes, it can happen. We could go into the early church fathers and continue this thread along. Then we could go into the Reformation and continue it. You know, when you read in the journals of Luther and Calvin, they're dealing with this stuff all the time. It's not found in their systematic theology or maybe in their preaching even, but in their real life, they're dealing with this. You read the journals of John Wesley. It's not in his systematic theology. It's just in his everyday life trying to deal with this stuff. And it's continued through church history. Here's the heart behind this. Number one, 
If you follow Jesus, you do not have to walk in bondage and slavery to the enemy. Jesus has the capacity to set you free. And our heart as a church is to start to get honest and real about this and go, Jesus, we don't know how all of this works. I don't have every answer, but I know that you want to bring freedom to people that are suffering. So if that means that we open up this kind of Pandora's box and this category, then we need to because you and I need it. I could tell you, and I will sometime, a story about my own encounter with this as a pastor in my own life. Stuff that I had been asserting truth over and truth over and fighting and fighting and fighting and, and, and walking in victory, but fighting and fighting and fighting until I met someone whose teaching changed my life and who was able to pray with me and Rochelle and address this issue. And there were no foaming at the mouth, explosive things. This was a simple confrontation that resulted in unimaginable. You would never know the freedom that I experienced as a result of that. And none of you would ever know because, again, Satan's not going to tip his hand and be like, I'm going to make Andrew look like a crazy man all the time, right? No. So here's what I want you to know. Jesus is greater. I don't want you to be afraid. It's not something I walk around in fear with. Jesus is greater. He's defeated all of the power of the enemy. He's the one who has authority. And out of his love for you and I, he wants to walk into these areas of our life. And if, which is the big thing, if, there are things that need to be confronted with his holy power. He wants to do that. So are all of you here demonized? No. Are some of you? Yeah. And that may make you feel really unsettled, but don't because you have the spirit of the living God in you who has all authority. And there's no shame in this stuff. It doesn't make you a worse Christian. It doesn't make you a worse parent or whatever. It's this is the spiritual reality we live in. And we just need to actually begin to acknowledge it. This is like ground floor teaching in the kingdom. It seems maybe like this is advanced. This is not. When you, when you walk in other countries of the world, they deal with this stuff every day like it's like, you know, you eat breakfast and then you cast demons out and then you have lunch and then you like, it's just normal. And just because we cover things up better in our society, because we medicate ourselves with luxury and with stuff, it doesn't actually change the spiritual reality that may be going on. And so our heart as a church is we want to walk with you in this, if there are things going on in your life that you don't understand and you haven't had a category for because somebody told you, well, you gave your life to Jesus, so it's all dealt with and done, then come talk to us. We actually, my heart is to walk into those spaces with you, to walk in the authority we share together in the kingdom and to see the victory of Jesus in your life over the stuff that's been crippling you maybe. And maybe you've just written it off as, you know, like 
whatever, whatever, whatever your doctor told you it was, or, you know, it doesn't like we give it a hundred other titles. And sometimes it is just a physical thing. Sometimes it is just a, from trauma or brokenness. It's not always demonic. The devil isn't under every bush, maybe every third one. (laughs) But this is our heart. This is why Jesus came to set you free. And that's not just about praying a prayer and going to heaven. That's in your life today. He wants to bring you freedom because he's that good. He's that faithful. Let's stand and let's pray. Uh, So Jesus, we just, uh, we bring ourselves under your lordship and your covering. Father, I pray for anyone present here who has not given you allegiance yet, who has not submitted to and surrendered to you. I pray for those who are here who are kind of trying to live like with a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of new age and a little bit of yoga and a little bit of everything else. Father, I pray Um, that your Holy Spirit, not in condemnation, but in truth and in grace would bring conviction that you, Jesus, are the only way, the truth and the life. And we just agree with Paul who said, even though we're human, we don't wage war as humans do. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds We destroy arguments, and I destroy right now in the authority in the name of Jesus every argument, every arguing and lying spirit that has set itself up against the knowledge of God, against intimacy with the Father, or the route to freedom that Jesus wants for us. In Jesus' name, we command them all to come under the Lordship of Christ. Every blinding and deceiving spirit We uh, forbid you even right now from having any influence, any uh, spirit of division or disunity, of anger, of enmity, strife, malice. In Jesus' name, we reject you and your influence. Spirit of fear, I command you to come under the lordship of Christ. I forbid you from provoking yourself in people this afternoon even to stir up fear or worry or dread in Jesus' name. I just declare the rule and the reign of the Holy Spirit over each one of us as we walk through this afternoon that the peace and the life of Jesus would saturate us today. Father, if there are areas in our lives that need your attention. I ask that you, by your spirit, would just bring revelation to those. And Jesus, just um, teach us to walk with each other into freedom, into peace. And I just also forbid you, enemy of God, from retaliating in any way. As your playbook has been opened, I forbid you from retaliating on me or my family or on this church You're already trying to thrash this church. You are. But I see what you're doing, and I forbid it in Jesus' name. I bring myself in humility under the lordship of Christ. 
We are determined to walk in gentleness and in peace and in mercy and in kindness. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, for your ministry in us this afternoon. I thank you, Jesus, that you said the gates of hell cannot prevail against you. Father, I pray for those that are so deep in bondage right now that they can't see a way out. I just ask, Holy Spirit, for your supernatural revelation and life. And I just speak to each person's spirit here in Jesus' name and say, be revived and renewed. Father, we love you. It's our joy to follow you. Make us aware, Holy Spirit, of areas in our life that have become door-opening events for the enemy of God to have his way with us or our families. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.